Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. So today I want to talk about something that has very few controversial overtones in Christendom, and that is Christians and politics. Thought we'd go with something we could all agree on today. So Romans 13 just sort of happened to pop up in the text as we're moving through Romans, and it'd be wrong to avoid it, so I wasn't looking to do this, but if I didn't do it, we'd be wondering why I didn't. Jesus and me in a political world. According to John Stott, Christians throughout history have taken three general views of how they should relate to the culture and specifically the political world, the government around them. In the 13th century, the Roman Catholic Church tried to combat heresy in Europe with a special tribunal called the Inquisition. If you're a student of history, you're aware of this. People who disagreed with the church, and there was usually a very tight church-state relationship in most European countries, some were Catholic, some were Protestant, and basically people who disagreed with the church, heretics as they were called, were hunted out, they were invited to confess, and they were brought to trial if they refused to confess. You'll notice if you've watched uh, that movie Braveheart with Mel Gibson, one of my favorite historic movies. Uh, you'll see that there's sort of this inquisition and trial, if you will, at the end of his life where he is tortured. And you see that tight connection between the church and the state there where the church is involved with his punishment even though his crimes are against the state. Torture was added actually in 1252. If you were found guilty, <clears throat> you could be excommunicated, you could be imprisoned, you would likely have your goods, property confiscated, or you would be handed over to the state to be burned alive. This happened shockingly for 300 years in Europe and longer in Spain where this went on until 1834, especially against Jews, Moors, and Protestants. This relationship to culture through government would be called imposition, <clears throat> where the church, through the state, imposes its beliefs on the citizenry, and there's a close enough relationship between the church and the state that they use the power of the state to enforce it, imposition of belief. Now, even as I say this, we all recognize what a terrible time in history this was. It was an abuse of the power of the church-state connection. In Catholic countries, Protestants were killed. In Protestant countries, Catholics were killed. Unfortunately, for people like me who would reflect modern-day evangelicalism, in both countries, people like me were killed. Let me tell you another story. Early in the 20th century, the German church was theologically accepting and teaching the superiority of the Aryan race. So in 1933, after Hitler came to power, a law was passed to purge the civil service or government jobs of non-Aryans. Rather than cry out, 
some German churches and synods actually adopted the same view and the same principles. So at this point, we would say that Germany was officially racist, but not violent with it yet. In 1938, in November, that changed. 119 synagogues were set on fire. 20,000 Jews were arrested. Shops were looted. Prominent Jews were publicly humiliated. And the church largely was silent. In 1941, Hitler's final solution was implemented, resulting in over six million Jewish deaths, plus other atrocities, as we know, against gypsies, I believe the handicapped, others. Not until two years later, two years into the Holocaust, two years into the murder of millions of people, did the Conference of Lutheran Churches in Germany resolve to attack the Reich government for its anti-Semitism? John Stott writes about this. He's writing, he's quoting Gutteridge, who wrote a book about this. The ultimate failure of the church lay not in the inability of bishops and synods to make plain and outspoken pronouncements in public, though it included that, but rather what was missing was a spontaneous outburst at any point by ordinary, decent Christians. A really widespread, public, visible expression of righteous indignation would have had to have been taken very seriously indeed by the Nazi leaders and would assuredly have had a profound effect in curbing the most iniquitous excesses and brutalities, if not in bringing about the downfall of so monstrous and unprincipled a tyranny. The story Richard Gutteridge tells speaks for itself. It needs no additional comment from me. The complicity of the German Christians who failed to develop a biblical critique of the Nazis' blatant racism should be enough to outlaw laissez-faire forever. Could they not have prevented the Holocaust? This relationship to culture is not imposition. It's what he just mentioned. It's laissez-faire. The church is going to be laissez-faire to the political world and to the culture, especially the government. The term actually comes from economics originally. It was used to describe the necessity of non-interference by government in free trade. The government is to be laissez-faire as it relates to economics. They're to stay out of it. The words have evolved, but they imply today non-interference, even apathy or indifference. The church could have stopped the Holocaust. And if they didn't, they should have been willing to have been persecuted for it. Obviously, we do not want the church imposing its views on the culture, like the Inquisition, but obviously we do not want a laissez-faire relationship to the culture as well, where we do not speak out against the great atrocity against life in our time. We don't want imposition. We don't want laissez-faire. So what is a Christian to do? Well, I'm going to read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to walk very quickly through the principles there because those principles don't cover all of the questions that need to be answered. But we're going to start there. uh, I'm sorry, Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. 
Therefore, whoever raises or resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers, listen to this, rulers, government rulers, are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I just want to look at three principles from the text very quickly and then walk down this issue of how we should relate to the political world around us. Number one, the political world, I mean the world of government, is an extension of God's authority in our lives. The political world is an extension of God's authority in our lives. Now this is not easy for many Christians to accept, and here's why. Uh, This passage seems to describe an ideal government, an ideal political system where government is functioning correctly because a couple of verses later he describes what government is intended to do. But what's interesting about this is we know that when Paul wrote this, the government that he was subjected to, he was Jewish but he's under Roman authority, was incredibly cruel. Rome was a pagan nation. They did not recognize human rights. They were persecutors of Christians. They they had disdain for the Jewish nation, which Paul was a part of. They were harbingers of all kinds of social ills, including massive uses of slavery, infanticide, public orgies, debauchery. So some Christians want to say this only applies where the system is fulfilling its God-given design But Paul doesn't put that qualifier in there. He basically says, the government is here for you, even imperfect governments. In fact, that's why he begins the chapter with every person. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, what's interesting about this, and one of the reasons this may have been stated there, and commentators suspect this, is the church would have been full of both Gentiles and Jews. But among that Jewish cohort would have been people who came from the sort of the sect of the Jews called the Zealots. The Zealots despised Rome's grip on Israel's homeland. They would publicly assassinate Roman authorities at times. They would go after Jews who supported Rome. And so this might have been designed especially for them. And so what Paul is saying is even when your homeland is stolen and you feel oppressed, know that government still creates order and is still ordained by God. Government stands in God's place. So that's where we start. We're supposed to have a deep respect for why government exists. Naturally follows then, number two, obedience to government equals obedience to God. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Wow. Government isn't God. Government is imperfect. But it stands in God's place. So Paul makes this strong statement. Since God ordains government and he expects our obedience, to obey one, in a sense, is to obey the other. God is at the end of the speed limit. I hate to say it. 
There are too many 50, mile, or 50 kilometer an hour speed limits in this town. Dee Dee and I are so proud of ourselves that we have not yet received tickets because we have been guilty at times. I speak for myself. God is at the end of the speed limit. God is at the end of the assault laws. God is at the end of the DUI laws. God is at the end of the gun laws. God is at the end of the marriage and family laws. God is at the end of all of it. We may say it's imperfect. We may disagree with the policy, but Paul's point is God is at the end of it, and that's why we are subject to it and intended to obey it, just like our parental authority. Third, government exists to praise good and punish wrongdoing. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. This is the clearest statement in the Bible about the basic purpose of government. Now, some of you are going to get real excited when you read this verse, when you hear this, because you're saying that this validates your view of government. I mean, Paul is saying government is only here to praise good and punish evil, and some of you have this view of very limited government. You're thinking, God is a conservative. This verse is making a statement, but it's not limiting other views of what government is involved in. There's nothing here about national security. This passage is basic, but not limiting In fact, in the Old Testament Jewish state where God actually created the government and it's a theocracy where he's in charge, you have a built-in economic system that has both conservative and more liberal elements depending which one you're looking at. It has land ownership, property ownership, things like that. It also has a social program to take care of the poor. So you see both in God's ideal government. There's much more extensive information in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy about what God set up for Israel. But this is enough for Paul to conclude, even in pagan Rome, we owe our obedience to the government out of fear and out of conscience, because it stands in God's place. And we owe our taxes to the government, because the rulers in the government are God's servants. And we owe our attitudes of fear and honor to the government. In fact, even when Christians were persecuted throughout the early centuries of the church, they still stood upon these principles that they should obey the government. That's what's included here. But what's not included here is anything about how governments come into being. How one government can be better than another. How governments change over time for good or not. How political systems should work. Whether Christians should be involved in the political process. None of that is here. And because of that, Christians disagree on this. I think we would all agree a lot. Now, we should not be overly dogmatic because of that. I am a, you know, I have my political views, and some of you are probably aware of them. I'm aware of some of your political views. This is a very diverse place on politics, so I can tell you that. The reality is, when the Bible is not clear of things, one of the things we want to do is go as far as God does, but not be dogmatic beyond that as a general principle of how we look at the scriptures. We're not, we shouldn't be into scripture twisting 101 when it comes to these things where the Bible is not clear. However, there are some examples in the Bible and history 
that should inform our thinking. And with that in mind, I want to sort of construct sort of a theology, a practical theology of how we should view the political world. First, God's ordaining of all governments does not mean that he is equally pleased with all governments. Now, the Bible is very clear about that. There's good government. There's bad government. Proverbs 14.34 says this. This is written by a king. But he's not writing about his own nation. He's writing about nations generally. Righteousness exalts a nation. Now, you're thinking, well, Solomon wrote that. He's a Jewish king. He's just talking about his own land. No, he's not. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. He's not speaking only about Israel. He is a king who recognizes, after much of his life is over, that not all peoples get the same lives, the same life, in a variety of different cultures and countries. He's been able to observe it. The national culture matters. The collective morality of a country affects everyone. It affects children growing up in that country. The collective beliefs reflected in public institutions shape every generation's moral code. And I think we would agree there are differences between countries and cultures. There's a difference between Canada and Cambodia. I went to Cambodia on some missions ventures. We supported orphanages over there. Now, if you look hard enough in Cambodia, at least not long ago, you could buy children. In fact, when you're going over on a plane, if you're an old dude, you probably should be explaining if you're going to land in Cambodia that you're there for mission purposes or people will assume you're there for sex trafficking. In Canada... We're sending people over there to solve those kinds of problems. In Western societies, which were largely constructed on the Judeo-Christian ethic and have laws about the protection of human life, especially children, we're different. We have raised the standard. Now, I want you to start asking the question, why do some cultures have laws protecting life and protecting children and others do not? But there's a difference between Canada and Cambodia. There's, between, there's a difference between Canada and, and Mexico. Southern border of the U.S., obviously a lot of political debate about that. But laws matter. What is tolerated does, uh, or not matters. There are people leaving Mexico for a reason. There's a lot of corruption, and the drug cartels have such incredible sway, even in the government, that people want to flee for freedom and a better life. Countries matter. Cultures matter. What our children grow up in matters. And God's ordaining of all governments doesn't mean he's equally pleased with all of them. He recognizes there's righteousness in nations and the opposite. Second, all governments legislate an ethical or moral code. Now obviously this is debated in all Western societies. How much should the church influence the state? And one of, the, one of the most popular statements from one side of that argument says, you can't legislate morality. And I've actually never understood that. I've never understood that. It's a common response to legislative ideas that relate to ethics. You can't legislate morality. It never made sense to me. Do you know that of any governments, do you know of any governments that allow murder, theft, and false witness in court? 
Murder, theft, or false witness. I'll bet you can't name any government, even third or fourth world governments, that officially allow that. Do you know that of the 10 commandments, the first four relate to you and God? So they're the vertical commandments, only relating to you and God. The other six are horizontal relational, relational commands. They relate to you and others. And of those six, every country that I know of has in their legal code three of them. Three of them. We legislate morality. We legislate an ethical code in all of our laws. You can't legislate heart change, but you can tell people you can't kill each other, you can't hit each other, you can't lie, cheat, and steal. We legislate that all of the time. We can't change people, but we protect society by legislating ethics and morals all the time. Laws are, by their very nature, a legislation of an ethical, moral code. The question for the church as it relates to the state is, how far should they go? And how should political systems and governments decide that? Third, governments especially democracies and republics, depending on what you want to call yourself, generally reflect the combined will and ethics of the people they govern. Now this is pretty basic, but incredibly important. All people, whether they're believers, God or the truth, are made in God's image. All people even people who don't believe in God, have a sense of right and wrong. All people have a sense of justice and fairness. It's a reflection of God's image in us. This creates, even in societies that aren't societies of faith, this creates what I would call a collective conscience. I could name many countries around the world that actually have very low rates of crime, have very little problems in many ways with law-breaking, and they're not Christian at all, but, but they still have a great national collective conscience. And that collective conscience is the basis for a nation's laws. It's really that simple. If you go to a theology class in seminary and you're talking about government, they would say that government is a part of God's common grace to all people. And it works because all people are made in God's image. They have the likeness of God within them. And whether they believe in God or not, that is not completely marred by the fall. They still reflect it. And together, the image of God in all of us calls us, that causes us to have this collective or social conscience. And usually, government then reflects that social conscience. Now, this doesn't happen in an authoritarian state. But it absolutely happens, should happen in political systems where we vote in our leaders. Because they're called representative republics or democracies. Pick your term. They are there to represent you. And if the whole collective conscience or social conscience in a nation is okay with child labor, sex slavery, human trafficking, and organized crime, drugs, and corruption, then the culture will get exactly that. But if the social conscience of a nation is against those kinds of things, then they expect their leaders to stand up for that, and they will re-elect those leaders who will give them a more righteous society. But what if they're not okay with that? Good government results when the collective conscience of a nation is elevated and the public square naturally 
reflects it. My, my point is this. Governments get better, nations improve, when the collective conscience of a nation is elevated. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, there's some great examples in history of exactly how that has happened. Some of you are not going to be happy about this, and I love you. And again, you can send your complaints to Aaron Mackey at BethanyChapel.com. But history reflects that governments have changed for the better due to spiritual awakenings in those cultures. The whole of Western society is built on that. In fact, I want to read from John Stott's book. He says, The change which came over Britain during this period was well documented in J. Wesley Breedy's remarkable book, England Before and After Wesley, subtitled The Evangelical Revival and Social Reform. His research forced him to conclude that the true nursing mother of the spirit and character values that have created and sustained free institutions throughout the English-speaking world, indeed the moral watershed of Anglo-Saxon history, was the much-neglected and oft-lampooned evangelical revival that happened in England. It affected the world. Breedy described the deep savagery of much of the 18th century, which was characterized by the wanton torture of animals for sport, the drunkenness of the populace, the inhuman traffic in slaves, the kidnapping of fellow countrymen for exportation and sale as slaves, the morality or mortality, I should say, of perished children, they died young, the universal gambling obsession, the savagery of the prison system and the penal code, the welter of immorality, the prostitution of the theater, it was perverse, the growing prevalence of lawlessness, superstition, lewdness, the political bribery and corruption, the ecclesiastical arrogance and truculence, the shallow pretensions of deism, the insincerity and debasement rampant in church and state, such manifestations suggest that the British people were then perhaps as deeply degraded and debauched as any people in Christendom. That was Britain a couple hundred years ago. Then things began to change. And in the 19th century, slavery and the slave trade were abolished. The prison system was humanized. Conditions in factory and mines were improved. Education became available to the poor. Trade unions began, etc. Whence then this pronounced humanity? Where did this come from? This passion for social justice and sensitivity to human wrongs? There's one answer. Commensurate with stubborn historical truth. It derived from a new social conscience. People changed then the institutions changed. And if that social conscience admittedly was the offspring of more than one progenitor, it nonetheless was mothered and nurtured by the evangelical revival of vital practical Christianity, a revival which illumined the central postulates of the New Testament ethic which made real the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. In other words, England changed. Western society changed when there was a spiritual awakening in the country that elevated that social conscience. When people change, government will naturally create laws that reflect that change and will be more righteous. But this only happens when and if, finally, the church must always be the spark, lighting the fire of an elevated collective conscience. It's part of being salt and light. Does it make any sense to us that we are to influence our family, our friends, our neighbors, but never engage any, in any way the political or public square? 
And the Bible doesn't represent history like this. What about Joseph in the Old Testament and his rise to power in Egyptian government? What about Daniel and his friends who were in the palace standing up for their view of righteousness? What about Esther, who's the queen in a pagan country and saves her people by influencing the king? What about Ezra and Nehemiah, who worked with pagan government authorities to return to Israel to rebuild it and were in such favor with those government authorities that they were able to do it? There had to be a relationship there. What about the prophets in the Old Testament who regularly called foreign governments to turn to God or else God would not bless them, God would punish them? History is full of people engaged in the public square. It's part of our world. The government's job is to restrain evil, according to Paul, and we are the spark that helps the government understand what that looks like. And every great spiritual awakening in history deeply affected within decades public policy. But the church needs to be careful to make sure, and this is where the critique comes in, that the state never becomes an arm of the church. Remember John Stott's two ways that Christians relate to culture. One was imposition, and he used the Inquisition as an example of that, imposing the will of the church on the populace. It was a terrible time in history. The other, the other extreme is laissez-faire. During a time of the Holocaust, the church remained silent while one of the great great, great tragedies and travesties against human life happened and the church was silent at the loss of human life for most of it. Those can't be our only alternatives. The third, which he states, is persuasion. Persuasion. We need to be a part of the persuasion process. We are here to win the war of ideas. We are here to help people think through what their collective conscience should look like, even if they aren't people of faith. We're here to help influence society and say, we think it would be best for all Canadians or for all U.S. citizens or for all people in whatever country we're talking about if the, if the nation as a whole stood for these certain values. The impact of God's kingdom on earth and the gospel go beyond simply individual salvation. If millions of individuals are saved, there should be a collective conscience change which influences societies and our world. You know, it's interesting. In another book I was looking at, there was an interesting point about persecution. Persecution assumes Christians are involved in persuasion. Think about that. I'd never thought about that before. Persecution assumes that we are not silent. If all of us decide that it's just Jesus and me with my wife and kids or my friends and we're just going to do it in the quietness of our home and the public square is off limits, if all of us decide that, we would never be persecuted for anything. We'd be forgotten. Persecution assumes that Christians are vocal in the public square. It's what creates persecution. It only makes sense if we're loud enough to be noticed. Not loud in a bad way. And I would say in this persuasion, the church needs to be extremely cautious. Extremely cautious. That when the church is trying to raise the social conscience of the world, the province, the city around them, 
they should stick to things that would be very, very, very important to God rather than other political issues which they just happen to care about. In other words, the church should be a voice into the culture about the value of life. Of course we should care about the value of life. When most of the abortion laws were passed in Western society, we didn't have ultrasound. And it's really creating an interesting dilemma for, for women who are pregnant and go to a, to a clinic and actually see an ultrasound. That didn't happen in the 60s or the early 70s. Didn't happen. It's changing views of life where even in cultures that aren't people of faith, people are becoming more conservative on abortion because of science, because of their ability to see life in the womb. The church should have a voice in that. Don't expect people like me to be silent about life made in the image of God. And I don't expect you to not care and try to influence the world about the most important fundamental issue is God creates life and it must be valued. Human rights. How we treat the image of God in other people. Sex trafficking. Slavery around the world. I was watching a, a documentary the other day about what's happening to the oceans around the world, and it was very fascinating. It's called Seaspiracy. It's on Netflix. But they were talking about in, in certain parts of the world where they are capturing people and slaves are actually working on these great trawlers that are collecting fish from the ocean. Everybody should be upset about that. Human rights, basic human rights, how we want people to be treated, freedoms, freedom to express ideas, those are the great causes which all people of every religion, every ilk should say, we care that there's debate about the great issues in our world. We care about life. Was that an amen? No. But I think that we get ourselves in trouble when we start saying that Christians care about certain elements of tax policy because they're good for families. Or we care about other issues that I might actually agree with, but the reality is I don't think Jesus wants us to be persecuted over tax policy. So I think the church should be involved in the things where if Jesus were sitting next to us, his heart would be broken by what's going on in our society and in our world. But I don't think he wants his church to be representing things that really don't matter that much to the kingdom of God. The test question there would be, what should we be willing to be persecuted for? Issues of life? Yes. Yes. That should be our agenda. Well, we're going to pray. I don't have an easy way to wrap that up. God, we thank you for your world we, that you've created. We thank you for your word. We see in Scripture some obvious examples of what government is intended to be. We don't see as much in the Bible about how we are to interact with it. But we see some. And we also recognize that history tells us that when people share your values, the bar is raised for anybody growing up and living in those cultures. And so we care about government institutions around the world. We, we, we recognize that certain societies, though imperfect, do value life more than others. 
do value your image in other people more than others, and we want all nations around the world to better reflect that, and so we pray for all leaders. We pray for all people in positions of power that they would recognize, whether they believe in you or not, that there is an authority above them, whether it is a God or whether it is the people they represent, that they would recognize that they are in office to improve the lives of the people that they serve. We pray that you would give us a better world. We pray that you would give us a church and people who have wisdom about how they interact with the political, the governmental world around them. Help us to do the right thing. Help us to be engaged. Help us to be engaged in the war of ideas, but help us to not be offensive to people around us, to choose those things that are important to you, and to be salt and light in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.